0: Welcome to the Mac Observer's Daily Observations Podcast. I'm Jeff Gammett. Today is Tuesday, September 4th, 2018. With me today, from Six Colors, I have Jason Snell. Jason, how are you? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's it's great to have you here. And what, what I'm doing this week is interviewing different people in the podcasting community, people that I like, and people that I think are doing really cool stuff. So of course, you had to be on my list. Thank you. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for making time to be here. So uh, you used to be the man at Macworld, and Uh then Macworld changed. And so Uh a lot of people are gone. And now you have six colors.
1: Indeed. I uh, I now am only a person who writes things weekly at Macworld. I still write a column there weekly, but I'm no longer employed by them otherwise. And uh, I set up SixColors.com so I can put my thoughts on my own website whenever I want. And then we also have a membership sort of support system there, too. It's me and Dan Morin as well, who used to work at Macworld with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do. So members get like a, a podcast that's for members and a newsletter and access to a community and then all the content that's on the site itself is free for everybody.
0: That's cool. And Six Colors is pretty awesome. I check it regularly because how can I not? I mean, it's your website. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, and so you also have become, um, I don't want to say a podcast kingpin. but you do- Yes, that would be inaccurate. But you, you definitely have a growing podcast empire.
1: Mm, yeah, I mean... It is, from a personal standpoint, I, last year, started making more of my living from doing podcasts than doing writing. And that has a lot to do with the economics of podcasts and the economics of writing things, writing words. (laughs) One of them is up, one of them is down. Uh, but yeah, I do a lot of podcast work in addition to my writing work, and some of that is for fun more than for money, and some of it is for my job for money. So it, it it varies a little bit. Most of the stuff I do on Relay, not all, most of the stuff I do on Relay FM is sort of the stuff where it's my primary income, and the stuff I do on in The Incomparable is, uh, again, not entirely, but mostly just for fun and not any... And any money to speak of? Although, again, there's a little bit. It's when you when you're off on your own, like I am, you you end up making money from like eight different pots, eight different things that kind of all kind of roll together into being something that allows you to make your house payment and feed your family. Um, so it's a it's a combination with podcasting. Some of it. When people ask me about my hobbies and things like that, it's like I, I've always been that person who does the thing. I've been fortunate enough to do a a version of the thing I love to do for my job. And then mm-hmm. I also do another version of that same thing for fun. And with podcasting, that's a great example of how it's all mixed in together. And there are some podcasts that don't make any money and some podcasts that do. But I
0: love them all. I totally get it. It's it's like having children. The, the high achievers and the low achievers, you still love them.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. And and it's all that you get. You find something else to do to love about it. But it is true when when you're on your own. Uh, as an independent, and you're trying to make sure that you can support your family, it it is a more ruthless calculation about like, do I really want to start this another passion project, you kind of have to say, no, 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 I'm doing enough of those. But I've definitely tried to leave room for some passion project stuff, most of which is the stuff that's at the incomparable. Yeah,
0: yep, totally get it. Now, uh, we've both been in this industry for a long time, and we've seen a lot of changes over the years, which is probably why we're both sitting here with microphones in front of us right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how did you see that transition? I mean, uh, well, I, I would love your perspective on that transition from from it's it's a writing world to now it's a talking world.
1: Yeah, I. You got to kind of go with the flow of the media. We are fortunate slash unfortunate to live in an era, to have lived through an era w- which continues of huge disruption of media consumption. Like if you think about it, newspapers and magazines for ha- they had a good run of like maybe a 100 years where it was all just. Solid. That that they, you know, they're like we made. We have newspapers. They reach people. There are magazines that reach people. There are TV stations and radio stations that reach people. It was like there was, and the printed word in general had a good you know several hundred year run. But I knew like in college I did a magazine. It was a short story magazine, so not journalism at all, but mm-hmm. just fiction. That was. Um, so I was the editor of my school paper. We we printed that on on paper. We didn't have a website. It was too early for that. Um but I also did an online fiction magazine and we distributed that on Usenet and we had an FTP server and you could get it an email and there was a, a layout version that was a Postscript file. It was before there was PDFs. Wow. So I, I, I say this to say that I knew then, because I was a computer nerd as well as somebody who was a media nerd, I knew then that it had already happened. I had to get a job at a print magazine when I got out of grad school because that's where the jobs were. But, you know, in 1991, I started a, an e-fiction magazine. So I knew the writing was on the wall. And so then, so at that point, it's just like, you just got to go with the flow. I always was one of the people who encouraged our, uh, our magazine to embrace uh, the internet. And even before that, to embrace digital, you know, online services of various kinds, but especially the web. And uh, there was a lot of resistance there. But so I kind of came into my career knowing that it was all going to change and it was going to be a rough, a weird ride and that I had to always be kind of pushing like, what's the next thing? Don't leave the next thing behind because I got to witness um, the giants of magazine publishing in our industry, in the computer industry, mm-hmm. who seeded their giant status because they were afraid of the next big thing. Like CNET became a giant of the web. Uh, and it was nothing in terms of print magazines. But so why did IDG and Ziff Davis not dominate, uh, tech media on the web? And the answer is they were too afraid of it and they just wanted to protect what was theirs, which was good for a while. And then it inevitably fell apart and they entered the web too late and they allowed their competitors who were brand new to build brands. And then you know, th- and then there's been a cycle since then which is like and then what happened with CNET versus blogs like mm-hmm. Gadget and Gizmodo and The Verge. And so it's been it's been doing this. So I, so when I was at IDG, I I pushed podcasts. I was like we got to do po- a podcast and we did a macro podcast from the very beginning and it's still going on. It keeps changing and it's sort of a YouTube stream that also becomes a podcast now. And, but it, it's the same old story which is Big organizations, especially, are really relu- who who have got a revenue stream from a tried and true source, are really reluctant to prioritize new stuff. They, it, whether they see it as a threat or just, uh, you know, see it as not interesting enough until it's a little bit too late. So, you know, I, and I have taken that now into my uh, personal uh, journey as an independent, and it's the same story. Which is, I when I left, I really thought that the proportions I knew I would be doing podcasting and I would be doing writing and I would have my own site and do some freelance writing and do some podcasting. And if you had asked me at the time, I would have given you some numbers about what percentage each of those would have brought in. But I was also aware that that could change and that that would be okay. Like you having more different options was better. And what has turned out is that very rapidly things shifted from, blogging income to podcasting income and you know you go with it because i've been trying to go with it for 25 years now Mm -hmm.
0: you know back when i was i guess uh I, i was going to say primarily writing for print but uh in retrospect exclusively writing for print I watched as all these publications refused to to embrace the new world, and they're all gone.
1: Pretty much, pretty much. I mean, some of them survive as a shell of themselves, but like, it's hard to find an example of some uh, giant. I mean, like, really, Titanic, unbeatable giant of an industry that uh, that did that and said, uh, "We're gonna, we're gonna go whole on to this new thing." Um, They always do it too late, and it's always too, you know,
0: it's too late to save them. Yes, and I've also noticed that some of those publications that did make the transition into digital, they still were rooted in their old ways, and they totally. didn't embrace podcasting the way they should have.
1: Yeah, oh, it's true. I mean, whether it's the web in the day and then in podcasting, it's the same story, which is, um, you know, I... Look, I had meetings at Macworld and the the Macworld staff we assembled was really great. Um, I had meetings at at Macworld where I would explain how we needed to be thinking of the web first. And by the end, we got there. But I'll tell you, it was like five years of repeating the same refrain of build your web web, uh, stories first. Everything goes on the web, have a calendar for the web at the end of the month, make sure that you've got enough material there to put in the magazine, but build it for the web. We got there, but like even when from the top, at least editorially, the directive was that. the fact is, uh, organizations are not just uh, management that is afraid of the future. it's cultures that were built for a different era, and that's the thing like I my editors, even ones who would agree with me in a face-to-face conversation about stuff like building things for the web, you could do this for podcasting too. Even that, they had so internalized our corporate culture, which was built around magazine deadlines, and had they had built their own professional self-worth in meeting magazine deadlines, that even though they would agree and they would know, they weren't lying, they would know that the web was important, they, in the end, would just go back to doing Things. So so it's it's not just the monster that you have to kill in order to affect change isn't necessarily the higher ups or the money men. It is often just your corporate culture and values. And and I'm saying on a, on a really basic level of like, what do we do that is valuable? And that's always going to be the biggest barrier. And, you know, if you really care, if you really love it, that's when something moves like we did. The MacWorld podcast, and we did the Clockwise podcast when we started that, um, mostly because we thought we ought to have a podcast, and the people who were working on it uh, had enough support from their managers that they uh, felt they could take the time, even though it was not like the real work that you should be doing in mm-hmm. order to do it, and that that is, you know, that that it, it was, you do get advancement out of that, but it's very hard because if everybody. <laughs> says, yeah, but that's not my job. My job is not to make a podcast instead of like my job is to create content to push our whole company forward and allow it to be vibrant. You know, that, that's a great attitude to have. Most people say, no, no, no. I know how I'm valuable so I don't get laid off. And that is to work on the website or work on the magazine or whatever the current moneymaker is.
0: That's a hard thing for a lot of people to overcome.
1: Yeah, it really is. It, I mean, and, I, and that's the thing is I'm not blaming anybody. Every individual is acting kind of rationally, but the, the, the overall result, the gestalt of all of that is why you see what you see, where there are these dinosaurs that seem so slow to react and not embrace things that seem obvious to all of us as individuals. Like it's a complicated problem. And this is why the inno- innovator's dilemma, right? That's why it exists uh, that, that you get good at something and you just kind of want to focus on that thing. And, uh, you know, it's funny to see Silicon Valley companies like Apple and Google, especially be aware of it and try to fight it. Like, I think that's why Google does all of their Google X, you know, whatever they call it now. But it's their wild ideas projects kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's an attempt to to fend off their inevitable death. Like they want to they want to be the next Google. They don't want someone else to be the next Google. And I think Apple does that to a degree, too.
0: Yeah, I've, I have to agree with you. It, it sure looks like these are companies that are afraid of getting out-Appled and out-Googled.
1: Yeah, they, they, yeah, they're afraid of getting too comfortable. Like if you're, if you're Apple, I think one of the key things you need to do as an Apple exec, since we, 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 you and I write and talk about Apple all the time, I think like if I were an Apple exec, one of the things that I would be saying, or if I was advising Tim Cook, would be everybody knows that the iPhone is where you make all your money right now. The important thing is to get everybody in the company to be thinking, what's our next iPhone? Because if all you're focused on is the iPhone, that's great. You're going to make money for a long time to come. But a day will come when you miss out and are beaten by somebody who gets there first. So like that's the part you've got to always be. And I think Apple has it in its culture, because I think that was a Steve Jobs thing, mm-hmm. that he really tried to put in Apple's culture. And that putting it in the culture. Like I said, the culture makes all the difference to say, don't be satisfied with what you've got. Always try to be your own replacement. That's the way you stave off that kind of inevitable, uh, corporate or career death where you end up complacent and stuck.
0: You know, I see a lot of people complaining about Tim Cook as Apple CEO. And, uh, and yes, I know my, my original plan was, we're going to talk just, uh, about the things you're doing, but, I guess we have to talk shop for just a minute. <laughs> so I see a lot of people who are kind of freaking out about the way Tim Cook is running Apple. And they're they're afraid that Apple doesn't have focus anymore. And I've been looking at this as... Tim Cook is the guy saying, "Look, iPhones are cash cow today, but there will be a day when it isn't, and we need to already be prepared and ramped up and running with the next thing before the iPhone starts to taper off and And I think that's what's happening right now they're They're branching out to find these other big revenue sources before the iPhone isn't a big revenue source yeah.
1: now i think I think the reality is that um it, from our position today, it's actually really hard to see what would possibly be as big a market as a smartphone, and it may be that this is the reality of it. It's like the smartphone is so huge, and it, it was like a game of musical chairs in, to, in, in 2007 to 2010, and there were two chairs, it turns out, and Apple sat down in one, Google sat down in the other, and that's it. Okay. Mm-hmm. That, that's literally it. And it's iPhone and some Android phones. And you, you can take that metaphor and make more chairs and put Samsung in a chair or whatever. But, like... They it's sat possible, at the kids' table. Yeah, it's possible, though, that that's it. That, like, literally, there's not going to be for 50 years another product that's quite as remarkable and profitable as the smartphone. That said... You want to, again, there will be something. So what is it? And you got to work for it. And I do think that that is behind, like when people complain about things like Apple spending money on this car stuff, like, you know, if I was Apple and I had hundreds of billions of dollars in cash and more coming in every year, what would I, I, I would absolutely place bets on like Google does. They actually literally Google alphabet calls it other bets, right on things that might hit because what you want to do is cover every area possible that you can think of because that means the one that's the big one will be in there. And I do think that's a part of it. If, if I have a criticism of Tim Cook's Apple, it is the other side of it, which is um, maintenance of product lines that are not your future but are your present. And the Mac is obviously the example there where clearly they had a change of heart last year where they're feeling about sort of like what they thought of the Mac. I really believe that they felt the Mac was just going to be what it was and fade away. And they would do kind of the minimal effort possible on it. And they would add a few things from iOS, but they were kind of going to let it coast. And something changed there um, that I think is going to lead to the Mac basically turning into a uh, kind of a subset or superset of iOS eventually. But definitely it seems to have been brought into the kind of priority zone where it wasn't before. But but otherwise, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's important for Tim Cook to... Follow that part. He doesn't need to be a product innovator like Steve Jobs. He needs to have other people on his staff that do that. But he needs to, um, he needs to keep that culture of finding the next big thing rolling and and stopping the complacency of. Je- yes, the iPhone is huge and hugely profitable, and we could get comfortable and just kind of rest on our laurels with the iPhone. But we can't. We have to push with the iPhone, and we have to find what's next. And that's I think I think Tim Cook is a good person for that.
0: Yep, I, I agree. And I'm going to switch topics, even though I'm sure we could just keep going for hours. On I'm this. sure we could. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're getting close to time, and we haven't even really talked about any of your podcasts specifically. And uh, and so I want to just let everyone know, The the Incomparable is yes. it's an awesome show. Well, thank and, you. and so w- with that in mind... I want to get potentially controversial here. Okay. What do you think of Jodie Whittaker as the new Doctor in Doctor Who?
1: Well, I haven't seen her, but I'm really looking forward to um, her and Chris Chibnall, who is the new uh, executive producer. It's a new era, and that is... I was talking to some friends who are Doctor Who fans the other day, and the thing that concerns me the most in the long run about Doctor Who, because it is kind of an established British tradition at this point, is... Um, it's funny, we're talking about this right after talking about Apple not being complacent. It's it being um, boring and business as usual. I think that, that that is the thing that will kill it, is that it will become boring. And I think one of the ways that you make it, because of the way the format is, where you can change your leads and you can change your production staff, you can literally change the entire show and it continues to be the show. Um, you need to change the show. So for those who don't know, Doctor Who, you know, came back in 2005. There was an executive producer change in 2010. Um, with this executive producer change in 2018, it's basically an entire new uh, writing staff, new producer, new actors, um, new directors, uh, new uh, uh, score, new, new musician. Right. The first time that the score, person scoring the episodes is different since 2005. I think that's all great. We'll see. I mean, will the episodes be good? I hope they are. Um, I also hope that they're welcoming to new viewers. That they are. That they they uh, can pick up, make new Doctor Who fans, new young people who see the new Doctor Who and are very excited about it. Because um, that's the most important thing. I think is just the Doctor Who continues to change. Because that's the thing. Unlike most TV shows and most franchises in general. Doctor Who is about that. It is about being able to say, who's your favorite Doctor? And I like this era, but I don't like this era and argue about all that stuff. And doing that also is allowing the show to renew itself and and remain relevant, just like the title character. So I'm looking forward to it. I have no idea how it's going to be. I have some hopes. I think Chris Chibnall... Showed with Broadchurch that he's a very good writer and producer, and I think Jodie Whittaker has shown in Broadchurch, among other places, that she's a very good actress. Mm-hmm. Um, Attack the Block, where where she's holding her own with um, John Boyega from Star Wars, great movie, great little British sci-fi action movie. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, all the pieces are in place, so I'm I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it, but I, I just my number one priority is just like I hope it feels different. I hope it's welcoming to new fans and that people get excited about
0: it. In, in uh, all over the world, not just in uh, in the UK, I'm I'm very excited for the potential, and uh, and when they announced that Jodie Whittaker was going to be the doctor, I was excited on on two levels. First, because I I know she's a good actress, but then second because. This is a fresh new take on the series,
1: right? After, after more than 50 years, because for those who, again, who don't know and yet are listening to us talk about Doctor Who, it, it premiered the week after the Kennedy assassination or the, or the like two days after the Kennedy assassination. So it's been on for more than 50 years. um, And yet by making and the title character changes into new actors every few years, three or four years, mm-hmm. uh, generally, um, this is the first time that a woman has played the role and the idea is that a time traveling alien who can change their shape of course they could become a man or a woman of course right of course never ever been done and how how can it be that after 50 plus years of doing a show you've got something new right another wrinkle something that the show literally has never done before that's exciting the groundwork was laid the last few years where we've seen sort of other references to people like villains like the master changing from a man to a woman Mm -hmm. but here we get to see it with our main character yeah I, i just i that is one of the things i'm most excited about about the fall uh and doctor who is um it gets to be different like markedly different they get to do something they haven't done before in in terms of the dynamic of the characters and that's uh that's cool i hope i hope it all works because again we haven't seen it we don't know but i hope it all works i hope it's a, a big hit
0: i hope it's a big hit too i i'm hopeful especially after seeing the the teaser trailers that they've tossed out it just it looks like a lot of fun yeah for sure yeah hey we really are out of time so we're going to have to wrap up jason thank you so much for joining me today I am very happy to have been here Thank you Jeff it, it was a lot of fun and and I'm so glad you're a Doctor Who fan because I just I love getting into into my <laughs> who discussions Excellent So listeners thank you for joining us and uh, and don't forget I'm doing interviews all week long with people from the podcasting world that I think are really cool so uh, keep tuning in. Thanks for listening. See you again tomorrow.